0: we have been working our way through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians living in and around Ephesus in that region. And the earlier part of his letter is very much a a kind of a gospel presentation of the, the beauty of Christ and what Christ has done for us. But about halfway through the letter he turned his content towards helping them better understand how to live out this new life they had been given as a follower of Jesus. Had, had kind of turned it to more of the practical matters of what does it really look like to, to live and breathe the indwelling of Christ. And in this kind of practical focus, if you will, Paul held high kind of ideas such as the importance of preserving unity in the body of Christ, about walking in the light in the new experience of having received Jesus Christ, the light of the world. He spoke about the importance of putting aside immorality and impurity to to push that away He spoke about putting aside anger and instead putting on kindness and consideration. As Paul kind of wrote and tried to help them understand, this is what the wise follower of Jesus, this is how he'll conduct him or herself as a follower of Jesus. He also shared about the importance of speaking only that which edifies and silencing crude or unwholesome language. Paul kind of broadened it out even to say, really, living our entire lives are to be an active, ongoing offering to God as a living sacrifice. Walk in the wisdom and the ways of God and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that your life is literally full of praises and gratitude to the Lord. And as he's in this flow of thinking of saying, this is what it looks like to live this life out, Paul wrote these words, and be subject to one another in the fear or reverence of Christ. Paul lifts up the value of honoring and respecting the other. No matter who they may be, what status they may hold, what gender they may be, whatever it is, just outside of yourself, honor and respect. See, when we defer to another in respect, we're we're living out that indwelling of Christ. We're we're living in that wise walk of wisdom as a believer in Jesus. And the reason to, to honor and respect was not just because it's a nice thing to do, but it was an act of fear or reverence to Christ. It was an act of worship. They were to view others through the eyes of Christ and recognize that through the eyes of Christ that all people have worth and value and are deserving of respect and honor. I mean, it was Jesus who spoke the words, here's how they're going to know, here's how you will demonstrate that you're truly a disciple of mine, how you love one another. And so Paul writes these words, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's going to demonstrate, the portion of scripture we're going to unpack today, he's going to demonstrate this idea, this concept, by by talking about relational roles. The role of being a wife, the role of being a husband, the role of being a a father, mother, the role of being a a child, even the role of being a, a slave servant or a master in authority over slaves or servants. Now listen, what we are about to unfold in Paul's letter was radically counter to the culture in which these believers lived in. These believers lived in a Gentile world, a Greek world, a Roman empire. And what Paul is writing about relational roles was just radically Against the flow of culture. I want you to just consider for a moment. Just to try to get a a snapshot of what that culture looked like. This greco roman Gentile world. Just listen to this snapshot for a moment. And recognize that, that this was the world that these believers in Christ had just stepped out of. And the world that they were very much still surrounded by. And the world that they were to take the message of Jesus to. Now... The Jewish people coming out and living in this context, that even the Jewish people in the time of Christ, the time of this writing, really honestly held a, a fairly low view of women and children. Certainly, and we have it recorded in Scripture, certainly there were Jewish men who loved and adored their wives and their children. But still, we're told in the time of Christ, in this time period, that that Jewish men were recorded as praying, Thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And we see even in the gospel records, the disciples, uh, not intending to be evil, but just in the flow of their culture, when the children wanted to have audience with Jesus. No, 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 children, you're not worthy of audience with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, no, absolutely, let the children come to me. And the reality is, is that in many ways, the Jews held women and children and marriage and family higher in regard to the Gentile world Around them, and yet, even within that religious context, a man's wife, a man's children, a man's servants were his possessions to do so with as he chose. Sons were more prized than daughters, even in the religious context, and that was a result of a common devaluing of women in the culture. Divorce even in Jewish circles, religious circles, it was certainly frowned upon, but it had become easy and common to do. We understand in history in this time frame that Paul is writing that even in religious circles, a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason he chose. I don't like your cooking. I don't like the way you're dressing. I'm just tired of your attitude. Done. But a woman had little to no power to divorce her husband, regardless of how she was being treated. In religious circles, men held strong authority. But if that was true in religious circles, do you know how much more extreme it was outside of that context? In this Roman Empire, this Greek world, this Gentile world that the Ephesian believers found themselves in, men literally held life or death authority over their wives and children and slaves. If a man said, kill my son, his life would be taken without much consequence because it was in his prerogative and authority to do so. And as we have spoke, as we've studied this letter before, that this was a pagan world immersed in sexual immorality to such an extent that men just utilized prostitutes for their pleasure. Wives were for the purpose of just bearing children and handling the affairs of the household. Divorce in this world was just a matter of the whims and the desires of the man. It was said in Rome of that time period, and this is so unappealing a phrase. This is so wrong sounding to us today, but, but this is what it said. They said, women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. In fact, one record speaks of a man of some note. Uh, that it was recorded of his nuptials. He was, he was married to a woman, and it made note that when they became married, this woman was his 23rd wife, and he was her 21st husband. This was the state of marriage in this society. In Rome, fathers held absolute power over their family. He could love his children or treat them as slaves, his prerogative. The father held authority over his children for life. There wasn't like, oh, you're now a man. You're on your own. No, as long as the father lived, he held absolute authority over his children. Even to the point when maybe his adult child, his 50-year-old son, would be appointed to some position, he could say no, and they would remove him. Absolute authority. And of course, even in this world, many fathers, I'm sure, were not this evil, but they had the power to do so. It's been recorded in Roman history that that when a child was born and presented to the father, if that father picked up the child, it meant that this child was wanted. But if he turned and just walked away, then the baby would either be thrown out, drowned, or taken to designated places where unwanted children were abandoned. And in those designated places where unwanted children were abandoned, anyone who came and picked them up just automatically became their owner. And this was essentially the pipeline where the temple brothels were resourced. And most abandoned babies were daughters. And if these realities in regards to wives and children, if this was the realities, what do you think the conditions were like for slaves? Slaves composed one-third of the entire Roman Empire by population. Certainly there were masters who treated, relatively speaking, their slaves well. Some slaves were more like tutors for the children or managers or overseers of the family affairs, but even if they held some privileged status, they were still possession and they were not free. Those that held some status, I suppose, were fortunate, but the majority did not hold those status, just possessions. Slaves were considered not people, but things. One ancient description of a servant or slave or bond servant was this. They're just beasts that are able to talk. Now that's just a snapshot. And it's against this backdrop that Paul writes about the relationships of husbands to wives, wives to husband, children to parents, parents to children, servants to masters, and masters to servants. Paul's words... We're radically calling the followers of Jesus into a much higher expectation, a much higher ethic, a much higher experience of marriage and family and daily life. And it is words such as we are about to unfold, properly understood, that elevated society and began to elevate the status of women and children and even slaves. So today we're going to take some time to rather briefly consider Paul's teachings. Later this fall, we may actually spend more time on these teachings in a broader, more topical approach, but for now we'll be relatively brief. And pastors Sarah and Josh Withers, husband and wife, will speak to us concerning the counsel given to wives and husbands. And then I'll come back and take a few moments to speak briefly about the counsel given to fathers, parents, children, servants, and masters. Before we do that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, just pause for this word of prayer to ask for your blessing, to ask for your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we unpack these words, I just pray that they would speak to us in a way that helps us to know how to better live this life as your followers. Come Holy Spirit, in your name we pray, amen.
1: Amen. Jumping to our passage in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, back to verse 21, I want to just continue to lean into this, this moment briefly, that Paul begins here with these words. Oh, could they show that better for you than for me? Good. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ this appeal, this instruction from Paul, this is referencing something very, very specific. See, we know them. We know these words that he's referencing as John chapter 13, verse 34. But John had not written his account of Jesus' life yet. Paul and the rest of the Christian community merely knew this as the command of Jesus. This was the command that informed all of life for Christians. Let's look there. John says in, excuse me, Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And there are a few peculiarities that we need to remember briefly about this before jumping back to Ephesians that will help inform. The direction Paul goes. Jesus gives a command and yet what leverage does he use to enforce this command? In other words, what reason does he give for why we ought to love one another? Does he say love one another because I am God? Does he say love one another because I am Lord of all? No, he doesn't. Now he is God and he is Lord of all, He has all the authority in the universe. He has every reason to say jump and expect us to say how high. But even though he has all of this authority, that's not the appeal of his command. Instead, Jesus leverages his love for the disciples rather than his authority over the disciples. He says, you see how I have loved you? Love each other like that. That's it. This is literally the command from Jesus, overarching everything, how, what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. In fact, in the next verse, verse 35, Jesus goes on to say, as Rodney said earlier, "...by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another." And so Paul's instructions for how to live, they're merely a practical outworking, a fleshing out of this Jesus command. He's not adding to it. He's clarifying and applying what Jesus has said. Go back through Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 sometime and see all of the many places where Paul is appealing for the church to love each other and to follow the example of Christ. In other words, just as I have loved you. So, Ephesians chapter 5, 21, back to it. Paul is reigniting here, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's reigniting this appeal to love one another.
2: Before we get any further, we need to be reminded of how this letter from Paul would have initially been heard. Notice I say heard and not read. When this letter was received by the church, it was not immediately reproduced so that each church member could have their own copy to read on their own time separate from one another. They would have most likely been a special gathering called by the church leaders and the whole church would have turned out to listen as these words from Paul were read. It's important for us to remember Two things when we read this letter and the other letters that Paul wrote to the churches. One, this would have been heard by everyone in the church at the same time in the same space. There was no third party delivering this message from Paul other than the orator reading the letter. And two, Paul would have known this and would have written the letter with that in mind. Paul knew that men, women, parents, children, slaves, slave owners, everyone was going to be hearing this all at the same time and in the same space, and he intentionally wrote for that hearing context. These two realities speak a lot to what is actually here, which we will very soon see. Ephesians 5, 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22 begins like this. Wives, submit to your own husbands. I just want to begin this section of the teaching with a brief acknowledgement that these words have often been a source of hurt, of pain, of injury, of subjugation throughout church history. We've gotten it very wrong at times. And as a woman, I know it is tempting at times to ignore these words, to want to just gloss over them, to not take them seriously. But I, to, I want to appeal to my sisters today to keep your ears open because you might actually hear good news from these verses. Paul does begin his instruction by appealing to wives to submit to your own husbands, but this should only be interpreted and understood within the textual context that Paul intended, which is, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives, your submission to your husband is first and foremost an active response to the love that you have found in Christ. One more time, your submission to your husband is first and foremost an active response to the love that you have found in Christ. In other words, you're not being asked to submit to your husbands because you are by nature a subservient species to man. By including women in the appeal to love one another, Paul has implied that women are equal disciples with men. And by framing the submission of wives to their husband as to the Lord, Paul is directly stating that this submission is a gift for a wife to give, not a place for her to reside. Verse 23, Paul continues, For the husband is head of the wife. Again, A partial quotation of Paul's words can lead and frankly has led to some pretty ugly teachings in the church. But Paul isn't done. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Josh is going to talk more about this in a few minutes, but for now, recognize that the most important thing that Paul is doing is defining how the husband is the head of the wife. In Ephesus, women knew that the husband was in charge. They didn't need Paul to remind them. What they needed is what they received, a model of what their relationship to their husband should look like in attitude. Verse 24 Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands as the church. Paul says that a wife's relationship to her husband should look like the church's relationship to Jesus. And the church is not called to be a browbeaten, lowly, valueless property, seen and not heard, unimportant, voiceless, less than entity. In fact, the bride of Christ, the church, in Ephesus alone, in the book of Ephesians alone, is called blessed, chosen, holy, blameless, family lavished in grace, the glory of Christ, sealed in relationship, co-rulers with Christ, more loved than can be known. And it is this baseline that the church is called to submit to Jesus. And even though it is no less actual submission, It sure looks and feels more like a natural response than some subservient role. This is what it means to submit to your husbands, wives. One, know who you are in Jesus. Two, love your husbands as Jesus has loved you by willfully putting his desires over your own. And three, never forget that your submission is not a result of you being less than, but it is a gift that you give with all the dignity of a daughter of God. In case there's any confusion about this concept of submission, let's clarify something quickly. Please realize that love and submission Are almost synonymous. Love is actively desiring the best for one another, for another. Submission is prioritizing another's best over your own. No one can healthfully love someone without submitting to them. No one can be a healthy person and submit to another without love. And by the way, this includes God. We're often tempted to view submission as repugnant. Yet the Godhead submitted their comfort, their right to not get dirty in the sin of humanity in order to love humanity. Even God submits. It's what loving people do. So to my sisters who are married, I encourage you. You are a daughter of God. Don't be ashamed to give your husband the gift of submission. It is an incredibly dignified manifestation of love.
1: All right, husbands, strap in. Briefly, I want to uh I want to jump back to verse 23 to catch something very important here. Paul says this: For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So who is Paul talking to in this verse? Who is he directing his speech towards? It's to wives. He is talking to wives about husbands. And again, remember what Sarah said earlier about how this letter would have been received, what the context of hearing this information would have been. Everyone is all together in one place. And knowing this, Paul takes this opportunity to speak to wives in the hearing of their husbands. In other words, while speaking to the wives of the church, Paul is raising the standard for husbands in the hearing of all. In fact, it is incredibly ironic that this passage has been used so often to lower the status of women when the entire point of Paul's teaching is to raise it. Have you ever noticed yet that that Paul talks to the wives for three verses and then he turns around and talks to the husbands for eight And even one of the verses that he's talking to the wives, it's about husbands. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that Paul tells wives how their husbands should be relating to them? But in addressing the husbands, Paul spends exactly zero time telling the husbands how their wives should be relating to them. In verse 23, in the hearing of the husbands, in everyone's presence, Paul has told wives what their husbands should be like. And yet the instruction to submit to them is not dependent on the perfection of the love from the husband, but rather on the love received from Christ. In the hearing of all, Paul has established the submission of wives to their husbands as two things. One, a dignified calling for women. And two, not the husband's responsibility to ensure its reality. Paul does not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. It's a very different statement. No, that submission, it's a dignified gift for a wife to choose to give. Instead, Paul takes a different approach with the guys. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. You need to feel... The macho men of Ephesus, okay. So husbands need to be more romantic and more emotive and more present and more affectionate and need to actually listen. No. Paul's not done. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This, again, is a further walking out of love one another just as I have loved you. And it is much more than romance and emotion and affection. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a sacrificial love. It is a submissive love. But why? What is the reason given? What for? Our husbands supposed to have some sort of a weird hero complex or this this martyr of the relationship? Absolutely not. Why is it that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her? Paul continues in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What does Paul say should motivate husbands to give themselves up for their wives? Well, for one thing, Paul is not saying that the responsibility for cleansing and sanctification and glorification of their wives is transferred from Jesus to the husbands. It's not the husband's work to do all of that for the wife. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is instead saying this. Husbands are called to sacrificially and submissively seek out the betterment of their wives as the priority of their lives. Husbands, your wives should be set apart to you as special, unique among women. Your words over them should seek to wash away whatever is seeking to drag them down and sully their self-worth. Again, the model for this is how Christ views the church. And when Jesus looks at his church, he isn't looking for flaws. He is appreciating the beauty of his kids. He's doing whatever he can to provide an environment where his bride, the church, can grow in the knowledge of how much they are loved, valued, cherished, and empowered. Jesus is the one that the church can always go to and know that he will say, you are mine and I love you no matter what. And that is what husbands are to be for their wives. And husbands, this is is instruction for how to generally behave towards your wives, and it is instruction for how to generally think of your wife. Because Jesus views his church as his beautiful holy bride, even when we are not watching. In the hearing of the wives of Ephesus, Paul has raised the standard for husbands far above where they could have imagined, (laughs) and he's just getting started. Verse 28, he continues. Paul says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And Paul deviates for a moment to quote the famous marriage passage from Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul acknowledges this mystery is profound. What I'm saying to you is probably confusing, but get this. I'm saying that this is referring to Christ and the church. What you thought and understood as being about marriage is also true about how the church and Christ are to relate to one another. If there was any doubt before, it's gone. Here the status of wife is undeniably raised to equality. Paul says, you are one. What happens to one happens to the other. What is said to one is said to the other. What is done to one is done to the other. In other words, husbands, what you say to your wives, you're saying to yourself. You have tied yourself to this person so tightly in marriage that you are indistinguishable entities. One cannot be injured without injuring the other. If one party is domineered, both parties are injured. And then, just as Paul has elevated the status of wives, he zooms out and reminds all of the elevated status of the church. The church and Christ are one. Because of the way that Christ loves the church, because of that, he has elevated the church to being equal with him. If Jesus didn't intentionally elevate the church, would the church have this status? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Likewise, if the husband does not love his wife as Christ loves the church, She will not be his equal. And don't turn this into some sort of a qualitative assessment here because that is missing Paul's point. That's not where he's going. The bottom line is that in Ephesian culture, and I believe ours today too, it is the responsibility of the husband to make sure that his wife is empowered as an equal member in their relationship. If this does not happen, the marriage will always be walking with a limp. This is what it means to be the head, husbands. It is your responsibility to initiate the cycle of love and submission with your spouse. Being the head of the relationship is not permission to call the shots, the right to boss people around. It is owning the responsibility to make sure that your wife knows that she is loved and is valued as your equal. So, to my brothers who are married, I encourage you You are a son of God. Do not run from your role as the lover of your wife. Have the courage to lay your priorities down and make your wife your priority. Seek her best. Wash her with your words and treat her as your equal. Love her just as Jesus has loved you.
2: With first 33 let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband can I share with you why I personally think Paul says this here at the end again remember that this is part of the flow of the teaching that would have been read to the church so when you hear what Paul has been saying, as we have, we see that the status of women, of wives, has been elevated far beyond anyone's imagination in this culture. And I think, I think it would be awfully easy for a wife to hear what Paul has been saying to their husbands and think, wives now, rule. We're like the most important in this relationship, But, but we should not see Paul's elevation of wives as an opportunity to take advantage of and exploit husbands. What Paul is describing is a relationship where both parties are competing to prioritize the other. Paul is summarizing at the end of this section because both messages are vital. If the church doesn't responsibly hear what Paul is saying, we will either continue in patterns of devaluing women or the pendulum will swing and we will do to men what has been done to women for cultures, for centuries, in many cultures. We need to get this right. For when we love one another, just as Christ has loved us, the world will know that we have something worth having.
0: And then Paul speaks to children. And as I said earlier, indeed, as long as a parent is living, you carry the role of a child. But in the flow of what Paul is speaking, I believe he's speaking to the young ones, the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And, fathers, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. First of all, I just want to say the very fact that Paul even addresses children in this letter indicates for us that the young people, the the little ones among them, they were part of the Christian community. They were being included in this call to walk in life as a follower of Jesus. They weren't on the edge, not quite belonging yet. He was addressing them as if husbands, wives, children, you're part of this community. And in so doing, he's elevated the value of children. And so what counsel does Paul give to the children, to our children here today? I hope your ears have perked up just a little bit. He simply and directly says, children, obey your parents. But as he's already demonstrated, he qualifies it with another little phrase. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, certainly Paul would recognize that, that not all parents of children are followers of Jesus. And, and whether or not they're a follower of Jesus, even then, not all parents will always give kind of correct guidance or request to their children. And, in other words, I just want to kind of acknowledge that the, the principle set forth in Acts chapter 5 is, is still very much in play when, when it was put so concisely. We must obey God rather than man. That principle is still in play. We must obey God rather than our parents if our parents command us to disobey God. But if that wasn't the case, Paul says, listen, children, obey your parents. And he gives some good reasons for this. There's good reasons to invite children to, to honor and obey their mother and father. First, she just says, because it's the right thing to do. This is the best course of action. Children, one thing that is hard to conceive now in your young life, but we learn to obey God by learning to obey our mothers and fathers. And he says this is the right thing to do. In fact, in other places, the Apostle Paul, such as Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 3, when he's describing the evidences of a decaying culture, he includes disobedient children. For as is today was then that the the family unit is the building block of society. And disobedient children represent a breakdown in the family. So he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because it's the right, wise choice to make. A second reason given for children to obey and honor their parents is that it is the will of God as given in the Ten Commandments. He references Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. He says, children, obey your parents. It's it's the right thing to do because it's the will of God as expressed in his law that we should honor our parents. and, And honoring our parents includes obedience to the extent that their requests do not bring us into conflict with our heavenly parent, our heavenly father. And Paul points out that there's a promise offered to children For those that obey and honor, there is a promised blessing of long, productive, blessed life. Children who are followers of Jesus are elevated and held to a standard of submitting to their parents as an act of reverence to Jesus. But fathers... And I think we could easily say, let's just say parents include mothers in this description. But he also counsels parents when he says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath or anger, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger, to exasperation. Paul kind of taught the same thing in another letter in Colossians chapter 3. And he adds a little bit that's helpful. He says, do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. Parents, do not parent your children in a way that discourages their walk as followers of Jesus. Delicate flowers bloom in the light of the sun, not under the harsh winds of a storm. So parents, moms, dads, don't provoke to discouragement, but instead, disciple them in the Lord. The best disciple is by walk alongside me and follow my example. Parents don't provoke to discouragement, but instead train them to follow Jesus as their own Lord. Teach them the wisdom of God. Instruct them in such a way that they will grow up to be healthy, vibrant, productive members of the body of Christ. And then Paul speaks to servants. I'd like to advance the slide, but it's not letting me. There we go. Let's see. The one time I don't bring my Bible up with me. There you go. That's it. Then he speaks to servants and then masters. Bond servants be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service As to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now keep in mind that Paul is addressing the believers in and around Ephesus. And the fact that he has included an address to bondservants, slaves, and in a moment, masters, must indicate that within the Christian community, there were those that says, I am a follower of Jesus, but they were under servitude to some master. And there must have been in that community those that says, I am a follower of Jesus, and they had servants, bondservants or slaves, under their authority. It's easy to imagine that the gospel of Jesus Christ appealed to those who were enslaved. It was an uplifting, hopeful message of redemption. And I don't think that what we just read here somehow suggests that that Paul is endorsing slavery in its worst forms. I think he's just simply addressing the reality of their lives in that time and culture and place. And given that this reality is not very reflective of our culture, time, and place right here, right now, in this space. I think it is fair to maybe overlay some of what Paul is saying with the idea of employee and employer. So what counsel of be subject to does Paul offer to bond servants? Verse 5 he says, be obedient with respect and sincerity. Verse 6, he basically says, don't just serve half-heartedly. Give it your all. Do your service with good will. And verse 8, and serve knowing that your good service will reap benefit. But there's reasoning behind that counsel. In verse 5, he says, obey sincerely as to Christ. Look higher. Obey as a bondservant of Christ. He's inviting them to look higher. (laughs) Render your service higher as to the Lord. Give good service knowing that you will be compensated from the Lord. Paul's words must have been so challenging to hear if, if you were a A new Christian who had been set free in Christ but was still living as a servant. But basically what Paul is saying here, he says, yes, that is your place in life. It is your lot in life. That is your reality now. But look higher. You serve your heavenly master, Christ the Lord, above your earthly master. So whatever your hand finds to do, then do it to the glory of God. That's elevating. That's a perspective shift. Listen, our occupations in this life are part of our discipleship of Jesus. It's not wise to kind of say, well, that's what I do for my occupation, and here's my spiritual life. Paul would say, no, no. Your life is your life and how you handle yourselves, even to those whom you serve as an employee, if you will, it reflects your faith in Jesus. But then Paul has just a little word for those who are followers of Jesus, but find themselves in place of authority over servants. He says this, and you masters do the same things to them, give giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Paul reminds those who are earthly masters over servants that they themselves are a servant with a master, Jesus the Lord. So, masters apply the golden rule. Do the same things to them. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. He's telling masters, listen, you're in that place of authority. That's just the reality of the situation. So if you want your servants, your slaves to respect you, then give them respect. If you want to serve them well, if you want them to serve you well, then you take care of them and serve them well. If you want to be have them to be honest in their endeavors, then you treat them honestly. Paul is telling them to think differently about your role of a master. He says, don't be threatening. Don't lead authority through threats. Paul compels Christian masters to lead with love. And why? Because he tells the masters there in that room, because you have a master in heaven. And in the Lord's eyes, he values your servants equally to how he values you. For in his eyes, there's no partiality. Can you imagine how radical this was in terms of elevating the dignity of those who were servants and redefining what authority meant as those who held authority over servants? I appreciate the minutes that you've given today for us to unpack this scripture. And let me just close with a brief comment. If anyone ever asks you, as a follower of Jesus, if they ever ask you, what good has Christianity ever done for the world? Maybe you could respond in this way. It's true that Christians have failed over and over and over again to fully live out the teachings of Jesus as found in the Bible. That's true. But that doesn't change the fact that it is the teachings of Jesus that began a massive shift in the world in terms of elevating women, in terms of elevating children, in terms of redefining what it meant to be a husband and father. And the teachings of Jesus gave rise to the long, difficult journey of recognizing the value of those that were slaves. And it's the teachings of Jesus that gave rise to a very long and difficult journey to the rejection of slavery. What good has the Christian faith ever done for the world? The teachings of Jesus has had a profound impact on the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, may we be willing in love and out of reverence to you, submit ourselves to others. May we submit ourselves to this counsel And may it help us more fully walk wisely and brightly as your followers. In your name we pray. Amen.